0: Amen. Amen. Hey, this morning we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 18 through 23. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 18 through 23 this morning. You're beginning to turn and, and tap your way there. Let me just try and catch us up where we are in this. It's been a couple of weeks since we we're in the book of 1 Corinthians. So I just want to kind of touch on a couple of things to catch us up to chapter 3, uh, or at this point in chapter 3. So as you as you open up chapter 3, recognize Paul is speaking to them. He says, brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. And so the issue isn't that they just came to know Jesus. The issue is they haven't continued on in spiritual maturity. They reached this level where they said, I'm pretty comfortable here. I really like this. I'm okay with this. I don't have to grow any closer to Jesus. I don't have to know anything else about God. I'm just going to kind of let it ride. It's just kind of how I'm going to be. I'm just going to go to church. I'm just going to kind of let these things naturally develop on their own. So Paul writes to them and says, okay, well, you have to actually put forward some effort to grow in Christ. You have to be leaning in. You have to be engaged, and you have to recognize you have not yet arrived. And so that's what he was communicating to them. But then he writes and he begins to, to tell them that, that there is a wisdom that they need to understand, they need to buy into. It's not a wisdom in this age. It's not a wisdom of the rulers of this age, but it's a secret, a secret and a hidden wisdom. And what is this? That it's in the providence of God that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for them, that they may have life. And everybody around them looks at that and says, this is the stupidest thing I've ever heard of. Paul says, that's okay, because that's the wisdom of God. And it's not going to accord, it's not going to find a home in the hearts of those you encounter but it does find a home in the heart of a Christian. So he's going around and he's moving these things and and is applying them to them. And then what we recognize is what he began with in chapter one, where somebody looks and says, man, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos or I follow Peter. Paul looks and says, you don't need to do that. Understand that, that we're only engaged in the acts that God has given us. He says, I planted, Apollos watered. And so I did these things, but God is the one who's giving the growth. God is the one who's adding to the increase. Then he begins to talk about the church and kind of how it's all built. And and effectively, the the message we walked away with from that was, man, let's be the kind of materials that can be built into something worthy, something enduring, and something valuable. And that requires something of us. then in 16 and 17 of chapter 3, he turned. And speaking to the whole church, he said, Church, do you not recognize that you're the temple of God? Don't do things that destroy God's temple. And so me as an individual, I can do things that tear down the church. You as an individual can do things that tear down the church. And us collectively, we can buy into some half-brain idea and we can destroy the unity of the church. We can create a church that is not really in any sense the body of Christ, even though it's a group of people gathering Sunday after Sunday. So he says, don't do this. Well, what we see in 18 through 23 is, in some sense is a summation of the entirety of, of from chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through this section. But in another vein, he is teaching us in some sense what unity is and where unity is found. And so if I find myself believing and following some ideology, if I find myself believing and following some teacher and these things are leading me away from Jesus then that's not creating unity in the church. And so I can have some belief set, I can have some action, some process in my life that is doing damage to the unity of the church. So unity in the church is only ever truly found in the person of Jesus Christ. Unity in the church is only ever truly found in the person of Jesus Christ. Not a program, not a person, but Jesus Christ. Paul begins in verse 18. Let's read all the way through 23, then we'll walk through them together. He says, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ, and Christ is God's. So Paul begins this this deal, and and he communicates something to us that is so desperately in need. Paul writes, and he has this, this echoing command, do not deceive yourself. Now this is giving to us an idea that the primary issue there in Corinth isn't outside teachers come in and say, look, you need to buy into this. This is a better way of understanding. This is a, this is a more fantastic way of understanding. You need to adopt this outside teaching. The problems that are creeping up within Corinth are homegrown issues. Men and women believing things about themselves that are not true. They have this heightened sense of who they are, this this grandiose sense of self-importance, and it's doing damage to the church. And we can see the same thing happen in any church at any time in any country. That when we as individuals begin to think more highly than ourselves, to the detriment of serving those around us, we are self-deceived. And it's destroying the unity of the fellowship. And so Paul writes quite simply, he says, look, don't deceive yourself. And the idea and the verbal tense that he gives us here, we recognize it's an ongoing effort. I constantly have to be asking myself, am I deceived? Am I duped? But I'm the king of deceiving myself. And so what does it take not to deceive ourselves? It takes being known by people in community. Not just the type of gnome where you walk in the back door, we call you by name. Hey, Anna. Hey, Valerie. Hey, Jesse. Hey, Dr. Sandin. This type of knowledge is strictly at the surface. It requires nothing from us. It requires no vulnerability for us. It requires this. Hey, what's your name? This is my name. If that's the type of knowledge that people in this room have of you, they don't know you. They know something about you, but they don't know you. And if you're not known by the people that you go to church with, then they have no ability to keep you from deceiving yourself. And you're all on your own. And it's you in front of the mirror asking these questions of, is what I believe true? Is the way I live right? And it's only you responding. It's only you knowing. To not be self-deceived requires vulnerability. It requires you letting people in this room in sharing with them what you're afraid of, sharing with them your hopes, and then maybe having them say, man, the things you're setting your hope on are not the things of God. Do you see how that requires terrific vulnerability on our part? It requires in no way and form, in no fashion, that we become self-sufficient. We are a dependent people. We are a needy people. This is the way God has designed us. He has created us for community, not individualism. He says, let no one deceive themselves. Look what he goes. He's going to bring the idea of wisdom back in. He says, If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, And so we certainly have people in this room that if we were going to bring them up on the platform, we're like, man, he, she, they have nailed it according to wisdom. They are rich. They are successful. They are, well, they're not so handsome, but they are rich and they are successful. And so we, we know things. We see ways people engage in business. We see the way people engage in fitness. We see the way people engage in relationships. And we say they have to be wise. Why? Because we're evaluating their wisdom in terms of how we reckon success. And so effectively, he's making this argument. If you see people around you and you say they are successful today, that everyone that sees them in community, everyone that sees them in our city and their place of business would look at them and say they are a successful person. And then that's how you're calculating wisdom. This is what Paul's word to you is. This is what Paul's word to them is. Become a fool. Don't pat yourself on the back. Don't think that you've arrived. You're approaching a terminal degree. You're approaching uh, some accolade. You're approaching some status or level of financial security that you've set in your mind of being, this is how much money I need to have to feel safe. You've set your hopes and dreams on the things of this world. And what does Paul say? He says, act stupid. Engage in foolishness. Become a fool. And what does becoming a fool in terms of Christianity afford you? Paul says it's wisdom. Oh, hold on a second. You're telling me if I walk out in the world and and I'm known in Greenville, I'm known in Dallas, or I'm known in Hunt County, or I'm just kind of known world over as being this bastion of wisdom that lost people will look at me and say, he is a wise person. You're telling me I need to forsake that and to pursue wisdom found in the Bible, which the world will look at and say it's complete and utter stupidity, it's complete and utter foolishness. I'll say, yeah, that seems to be what Paul's saying. I I think you actually are a wise person. This is what he's saying, but it's just so hard for us. Why? It's hard to forsake the accolades of those we come in contact with. I want you to understand something. Paul's not looking at it and saying being successful in business is wrong. Paul's not looking at it and saying being successful in life or being recognized as being successful is wrong. But the difficulty and the temptation becomes is when that becomes our identity and when we like it. The Christian's identity can only ever be found in Christ. But the temptation and the difficulty is we give so much of our time to our work. We give so much of our time to our families. That by virtue, of that's where the lion's share of our time goes, that's where we begin to see our identity. So Paul looks at it and he says, Become a fool that you may be wise. Verse 19, he says, For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. Now he said something very similar back in chapter 1, verses 18 and 23. Let's let's go look there. He says, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. It's folly to those who are perishing. To everybody who looks at Christianity and rejects it, they're not going to look at it and say, this seems to be a legitimate worldview you have. This following Jesus and forsaking riches and giving up power. This seems to be right. I just don't want any part of it right now. It says it's folly to them. They look at it, they look at it and they say, Well, you know, John seems like a really sharp guy. Chris seems like a really sharp guy. Julie, I mean, she seems incredibly smart. I I, I just can't believe that she would live her life centered around the Savior who is broken and defeated. Although somehow she tells me that he rose from the grave and that somehow overcoming ridicule finds him to be victorious sitting at the right hand of the Father. Paul says, all those who are perishing, look at your worldview, look at what you believe, and they say it's complete and utter stupidity. Verse 23 He said, we preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to Jews, and it's folly to Gentiles. The corner of the market of Christianity is Christ crucified. The very foundation of what we believe is Christ crucified. And it doesn't matter if the people around you disbelieve it or ridicule it or ridicule you for believing in it. If you want to be a Christian, this is all there is. This is the basis of our belief here. We're not finding ourselves in some other way. So let us be counted among the fools. Let us not be counted among the powerful or the erudite or the successful. What a a strategy for getting people to buy in, right? Somebody walks up to you and says, look, I'm thinking about being pretty interested in Christianity. What are the selling points? You're like, well, we're just a bunch of foolish people. What else do you have, though? (laughs) Oh, I mean, Christ, the very cornerstone, the foundation, he was put to death, and he calls us to follow him in that vein. Okay, do you have like a Christianity light, like something I could be like some modicum of popularity and be known by people, be successful, late in life, have a resurgence and be really just exceptionally given to this Christianity because by that time I've, I will have lost all form of senility? Oh yeah, we've got that. No, we don't have that. The only way to be a Christian is to set Christ as your foundation, to be to subject yourself to open ridicule and to be welcoming of only receiving the wisdom from God. That's Christ in him crucified. A stumbling block to Jews, folly to the Gentiles, and foolishness to all who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the wisdom of God. Do you want to be wise? Don't be self-deceived. Become a fool. Paul is going to strengthen his argument with these two quotations here, one from Job 5.13 and the next from Psalm 94.11. He said, The wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Or if you look at the ESV rendering, it says they are but a breath. So we have all of these things that the world looks at and says, I man, this is what it is to arrive. This is what it is to be successful. And what does it say? He says he catches the wise and their craftiness. The cleverness of this world. The rat race, trying to make it to the top, whatever that is, trying to be the most successful, trying to be seen as having it all together. We're creating these, these clever and, 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 and intricate traps that we are ultimately caught in. And this is the way of the world. He says God catches the the wise in their craftiness. Look what he says about the thoughts of the wise. He's talking about those that are wise in the world. He says they're futile. They're just empty. There's just nothing to them. There's nothing there. What is your identity found in? Whose are you? So look what he says. He says, so let no one boast in men. We don't find ourselves often boasting in men when I meet people, they don't, they don't often say, why, well, I, like I, I follow this guy or I follow that guy. But the issue at heart here in Corinth, they weren't liked by anybody. Everybody in their community saw them and the more they found out about their Christian worldview, the less they thought of them. And so what do they find themselves doing? They find themselves latching onto the teacher that they resonated with the most. And so some of the people said, look, I'm an originalist. I go all the way back to Jesus. Some of the people said, oh, I follow Paul. You know, he planted our church here in Corinth. And others said, well, do you know Peter? He's the, he's the rock upon which the foundations of the church are going to be leveled. And somebody says, oh, my goodness, but Apollos, like he's the most erudite, He's the most polished, he's the most exceptional speaker I've ever engaged in. I follow him. These other guys, oh, what Apollos has done with their teaching is just amazing. They should all write him a letter of congratulation and thanks. But we don't find ourselves doing that. We live in a time and in a world and in a place where Christianity is, is, for the most part, culturally tolerated. To a point to the degree that somebody actually finds that you believe these things, you begin to talk about them. Now they're getting uncomfortable, but it is tolerated within the public sphere. But we don't boast in men. We boast in our jobs. We boast in our families. We boast in politics. We boast in play, and we boast in fitness. We boast in our jobs. When I was in college, I had a professor on syllabus day. Syllabus day is the day you come in, you check your brain, you're barely there. You're only there to hear if they say, now this isn't in the syllabus. And then you write frantically because you know you're going to be asked this later. I only had this backfire on me one time. It was in chemistry. Apparently chem majors don't have syllabus day. They have the first day of class and an exam. It was terrible. (laughs) This is why God invented the Q drop. And so uh, so I'm in there and this teacher, it's on syllabus day. And she goes around from student to student and she says, "Uh, who do you say you are? You're thinking something, and, and so you respond, and then she goes to the next one, and who do you say you are? And, and you respond, and so it was, I'm a, I'm a Texan, or I'm, a, I'm an American, or I'm a college student. And after every student gave a response, she offered her critique, and so she would turn to Brent and say, Brent, who do you say you are? And you're like, I'm, I'm a husband, I'm a father. And so she turns to that, and she begins to say, well, don't you, don't you feel that when you describe yourself in this way that you're... Blocking yourself off from finding any kind of uh, unity, any kind of parity with the other students around you. Seems to be awfully exclusivistic. So she just moved through and she critiqued. But in some sense, we find ourselves engaging in the same practice when we find our identity in all these various things. We're not finding our unity in Christ because we're not finding our identity there. We find our identity in work. Think about the number of hours you spend at work. 50 60 hours a week right 50 60 hours a week you're engaged in work and and you work so that you can get paid so that you can feed your family so that you can pay your bills and so i'm not saying that we just all need to quit our jobs and and find a church member who has a large tract of land that's self-sustainable anybody anybody see look we don't have that but i'm not saying that we should move there and we should forsake work but we can't find our identity in it but it's so incredibly difficult because work demands so much of us it wants our hearts And the harder we work, the higher we climb. And the higher we climb, the more we're paid. And the more we're paid, the more fun we can have. And the more fun we can have, the more enjoyable life is. Or the better we can care for our children. Or the better we can care for our spouses. The better our health care is. But work can't be our identity. But it so desperately wants to be. And we give it so much of our time that it, in some sense, is by de facto. And so we push back on that. And we, we roll into family, those of us who have families, and we say, I just want my family to be my primary engagement. I know I can't give the most time to my family, and so it gets second. And so we're engaged in our kids' sports, and we travel for our kids' sports, and and we stay up late, and we miss things for these because we want our kids to know that they're important. But what are we teaching them? We're teaching our kids not that they're important, and they are. We're teaching our kids that they are most important, and they're not. What's most important? It's Christ. And the world looks at it and says, no, that's foolishness. Your kids are most important. They're your most precious commodity. No, they're not. It's my faith in Jesus Christ that is. And hopefully it's their faith in Jesus Christ that is. If you teach your kids that they're the most important thing uh, to you in your life, they're not going to want to follow Jesus. Why? Because you've made them into a God and an idol. And why would they ever want to give that up? The call to follow Christ is the call to sacrifice. It's called a die to self. Don't be self-deceived. You can't worship your family and worship God at the same time. So it's work, it's family, it's politics. We're such a politically driven church, and I just don't get that. I guess I spent too much time out of this country that every political season rolls around. I'm like, we're voting again? Like We just did that. Like, I need to hire a consultant that will call me and say, look, it's time to vote again. This is what you're going to look at. This is what this looks like. Because I just, like, I, like, my mind wasn't programmed at this very, I guess, formative age. Like, I'm out of the country from 3 to 14, and sometime in there, my brain just went. And then I came back to the U.S., and we're just voting all the time. And the difficulty, <laughs> sorry, the difficulty of, of this in politics is that we set our hopes and dreams on who we put in office. And then we're chronically disappointed that they're not doing the things that we thought they would do. And and look, this has been the cycle since the beginning. Politicians are gonna promise things and not deliver. Just live with that. They're compromising, and I'm so glad I'm not a politician because I'm not a very compromising person. My wife laughs hardest. Why did you laugh? I'm not willing to compromise on that. But man, we set our hopes and dreams and, and so we're willing to bend over backwards to say this is okay and this belief and, and, and these actions are okay because they're politically expedient and, and they're ultimately getting the things I want. So as somebody who votes, I look at pro-life issues and I say, absolutely, I'm pro-life. I want to vote for pro-life candidates. And so as somebody who just stumps against that, like I have a hard time with this. I, I really wrestle in that. But I don't see the ultimate salvation of humanity coming through a political process. We cannot give our hearts to politicians. We can't compromise our Christianity when we recognize politicians abusing Christianity because it's expedient. As Christians, we are a massive block of voters, right? We're a massive block of voters. We seem to be sometimes not very wise. We want to believe the things that are said that we agree with, and we want to turn a blind eye to the things we disagree with. Don't find your identity in politics. Don't find your identity in power. <coughs> to be a Christ follower is to forsake power, to give it up, and to follow Jesus, to find our identity in him. Let's just look at two, and let's combine them together, play and fitness. We're such an affluent people, not, not Ridgecrest per se, but just people at this time At this junction in history, we have income that doesn't always have to go to bills, and so we try and find fun things to do with it. I mean, we should have fun. I'm not this killjoy. But fun is not what our lives are here for. We weren't created for fun. We were created for fellowship with God. We find our identity in Him, not in our extracurriculars fitness, and then I'm just going to get off of this. I'm clearly not a beacon of fitness, okay? And so this is a little bit like the the pot calling something else something. (laughs) The food that's, the bacon that's about to be fried saying, you're delicious, I want to eat you. But just know this, fitness can't be the end for you. The only time fitness is addressed in the New Testament, Paul speaks about it. He says, it is of some value. He would have done us a great service if he just said, it's almost completely worthless, because it's the same thing, right? It's almost completely worthless. The pursuit of Christians and fitness, this should be it. If you are so incredibly out of shape and unhealthy to the degree where God calls you to serve, you can't get up and go, then you have an issue and you take care of that. God didn't create food so that you could just continue to, to, continue to grow and to be the biggest person that you possibly could be. Neither did he create fitness so that you could be the biggest, most muscular person. Where are you spending your time? Where are you spending your resources? That's where we find our identity. When we ask these questions, and maybe you look and you say, Look, I don't have a job, I don't have a family, (laughs) I'm a communist, and uh, (laughs) so I don't think anything's fun, and I don't exercise, and so I'm totally free. We begin to find our identity in those things that we give our time, we give our heart to. So the question that all of us can ask is Where is my heart? Where do I find my identity? Somebody walks up and says, who are you? It's not what you do, but it wants to be. God catches the wise, catches the, the wise in their craftiness. He knows the thoughts of the wise, they're futile. Let's not be those who are caught in the craftiness of this world or the wisdom of this world. Let's not boast in men. Let's not boast in our, boast in our work, families, politics, play, or fitness. Because look what He says, he says, for all things are yours. Boasting in men is this idea of seeking to find our security, our status in something. But he turns, he says, all things are yours. All things are yours. Christian, all things today are yours. All things are yours. So he turns to the root issue that over and over and over again divides them. Paul, Apollos, and Cephas And he he had asked this question back in chapter 1 to verse 13. He says, Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? In essence, everything else fails the identity test for the Christian. Why? Because it cannot be the foundation, it cannot be the basis for our life. All things are ours. And he says, Whether Paul, Apollos, or Cephas, the fascinating thing is repeatedly they said, I follow Paul, effectively saying, I am Paul's, I am Cephas's, I am Apollos's. So why does Paul say here then that they shouldn't boast? It's not because they're all doing the same work. It's not because they're caught up in the same thing. It's not because God is giving the increase. But the reason here he gives them for why that they shouldn't do this is because the the disciples there in Corinth, the followers of Jesus there in Corinth, they have the apostles. It's a change of ownership. It's not that Paul has the church in Corinth. It's that the church in Corinth, in some sense, has an ownership of Paul. They have an ownership of Cephas. They have an ownership of Apollos. All things are theirs. All things are ours. Look what he does in the latter half here. He, He says, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future. All are yours. All are yours. All eternity is ours. There is nothing wherein that we might find our security and our foundation outside of Jesus. All things are ours. In some sense, Paul is talking about the ability for us to be separated from God. Look what he said here in Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39. He says, for I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. All things are yours. All things are yours in Christ. This is where we find all things. We live our lives trying to gather all things to ourselves. And the amazing message of the gospel of Jesus Christ is to say all these things are yours when you become empty and weak and broken in Christ. I want to be seen as successful. I want to be seen as self-sufficient. I don't want to need anyone else because if I don't need anyone else, no one can disappoint me. No one can let me down. And I can't disappoint anybody else either. But all these things are mine only in so much as I am found in Christ. And Christ is God's. So we begin to see the interrelationship of the Trinity there. That Christ himself submits himself to the Father. So too we are called to submit ourselves to Christ. The only place that a church can be unified is in the person of Jesus and at the place of brokenness. If you're not a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, the world for you is akin to being entered into one of the tubes where money is flying around you and you're quickly trying to grab as much of it as possible. And you're watching the clock tick down. As it ticks down, your heart beats faster and you're reaching more frantically to try and grab the things around you and to pull them in and to hold them tight. So when that clock hits zero, you have accumulated so much, you would be self-sufficient. This is what life is like for the person who doesn't know Jesus. The only things you can accumulate in life are passing and fleeting when you come to know Jesus he takes you broken he takes you needy he takes you empty and he gives you all things in him the son of God who came who lived a perfect life who was broken on the cross who took the penalty and the punishment for your sin and my sin who entered into the grave and then three days later rose up so that each day All these things are mine. Why? Not because I'm crushing it on a Sunday or I'm winning on a Monday. All things are mine because I am broken and found in him. Let me pray for us. Father God, we want... We want so much. But God, your word communicates to us that for the believer, our hearts are only ever to be found in Jesus Christ. But yeah, we have a world that says that's ridiculous, that that's wasteful, that that's fruitless. And so we find ourselves struggling with that. And so God, this morning, I pray that you would work in our hearts To help us be content to rest in you. To see the overabundance of your care and provision for us in Jesus. you're so good to us. So caring and so merciful. So God, in your mercy, would you cause us to see that? God, in your mercy and your grace, would you work in the heart... Of the unbeliever this morning helping them to forsake the treadmill of this life the rat race that they would find themselves broken at the cross that they would receive the love of Jesus, the forgiveness of their sins and in him they might find it all we submit this to you in the name of Jesus amen